This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The third wave is hitting us hard, and it's different, more contagious, and more dangerous for younger people. The focus for vaccination has shifted to the so-called hot zones, where the most outbreaks are occurring, and there are calls to shift much of the province's supplies there. And while the focus now seems to be younger people, especially the very tragic death of a 13-year-old girl, the fact is that most of the people who are in hospital in ICUs or dying are over 60. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, thanks for coming on. Uh, I'll tell you... uh, what's kind of at the top of my mind now. And uh, I've heard a lot of other people asking the same question. So, you know, we were expecting to have a lot of supplies of AstraZeneca. We, uh, we don't because of the terrible situation in India. And a lot of people are wondering if you can mix vaccines, if you can get a second dose of a different vaccine than you had your first dose. And are you aware of any studies on that or what is the situation? The current recommendation from the CDC and other health bodies is that we don't mix and match uh, vaccines. We don't know uh, whether that's effective. So the first dose that you received, the vaccine that you received your first dose should be the same that you received your second. And even just thinking from a practical point of view, it's, it's unlikely that the producers of each of these vaccines are going to want to enroll patients in a study that includes a, you know, a, essentially a rival or competitor's vaccine. So, I mean, we, we really don't know the answer to that. Presumably, if it's two mRNA vaccines, it's probably not a big deal, but nobody's advising that to be done. We, we do advise that people use the same vaccine that they got their first dose with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was interesting because uh, I was talking to Dr. Peter Uni a week ago, and he was musing about this maybe happening in the future. I'm not sure if he was referring to booster shots as opposed to the second shot. Yeah, with any kind of vaccine that we have so far, we always recommend the same uh, you know, type of vaccine be given the second time. It certainly is possible that in the future, if you have uh, to require a second, a, a third dose or a booster shot in a year's time. There's no reason to believe why you couldn't start a new series. So when you fi- when you start a series, you should finish it. But if you need a second series of vaccines, there's no reason to believe why you couldn't get something else entirely. We know that from flu vaccinations, people do receive over the years various types of vaccines annually. And so that's certainly acceptable. And that's based on what we know of uh, which vaccines work best in which populations. Now, the military is arriving here. Uh, what do you make of that? I think uh, any kind of help we can get, it makes sense, especially in areas of the country or areas of the province, I should say, that are most hard hit. So we know that the northwest uh, area of Toronto and area in Peel as well, where there is very high uh, numbers of hospitalizations, ICU admissions, that's where the most help can be provided. And, you know, when, whereas in the first and second wave, 
there was concern about help being provided to the long-term care facilities. Now the, the more overwhelmed areas are the acute care facilities, are the hospitals, particularly the general wards, and especially the ICU admissions. We're still seeing you know, almost 60 new admissions to the ICU every day. Wow. Uh, and uh, I want to ask you, because we've, uh, we've seen this move on the part of the long-term care ministry, and they want to move people who are alternate level of care into nursing homes. And it seems to me that's what caused a big problem the last time. And they also want to allow uh, PSWs and other workers who ha- are vaccinated to, to work in multiple homes. Does that give you any pause? I think uh, one of the big differences this time is that there's vaccination available. So whereas placing patients in long-term care facilities would have been a high-risk maneuver in wave one or wave two, there is a significant number of people vaccinated in those areas, patients and health staff, making it you know, per- perhaps the more safe place for people to be at this point. The other thing to recognize is that you, know, you can think of the situation as being like a green zone, a yellow zone, red zone kind of situation with your, with your workforce, with your manpower. If you're in a, you know, a light situation, then yeah, you would try to restrict things and do things a little bit more carefully. But when you're in a red zone situation where manpower is at, at sh- there's a shortage and you need and your priority is patient safety, then you will have to do a few things that you wouldn't otherwise do because ultimately the, the most important thing is to keep patients safe. Well, that's the thing. Uh, vaccine hesitancy among workers in long-term care has been pegged as high as 30%. And, you know, my understanding is that they don't even have to tell you. Right. So there is, um, it's important for the public to recognize that whether or not an individual is immunized is actually private health information. So technically, at this point in Ontario, you're not required to provide that information to your employer. If you're asked, you certainly can volunteer that information. And at every hospital, the um, occupational health departments are always asking staff to volunteer that information so that's known but you're right, it's not uh, required for you to volunteer that at this point, um, although it is required for you to provide other personal health information to occupational health, just not this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I would imagine it's a pretty tricky situation. Uh, from what I know now, and we have to check it, it's voluntary. Uh, do you know of patients in your own facilities, ALC patients, who have volunteered to move into nursing homes? Um Yes, that's certainly part of the approach. Um, I think it's also important to recognize that people who are deemed ALC have a variety of care needs. Some may have very high requirements and require a lot of uh, 24-hour care, for example, where they must you know, be most appropriately looked after in some of these uh, long-term care facilities, whereas others are requiring some other level of care. So I think um, it all depends on those specific patients and where they're best suited. But certainly having those patients uh, admitted to a hospital ward, an acute care ward for long periods of time, it, it doesn't benefit them and it doesn't benefit the, the people around them, the, the, the patients who are acutely ill. So having those patients placed in another uh, environment, it, it actually benefits them as well. Right. But of course, this, this has been a really hugely long-standing problem, a problem from long before the pandemic. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been always a long-term problem is having patients who do not require an acute care bed, having them there and finding the most safe and appropriate place for them to be outside of a hospital. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Joe in Toronto. Hi, Joe. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. You know, it's really alarming uh, and actually uh, quite 
unimaginable, you know, what's happening in this province where we're moving so many people um, away from 416 hospitals and we're relocating these people as far away as North Bay and Hamilton and, and Kingston. Uh, like, what is going on? Like, seriously, I, I know it's just poor planning on the, on the part of the government and the, and the ministry. I don't know but if it's when, poor planning or, or, you know, their fault. Well, it's not good planning, uh, Libby. I don't think it's good planning because this is something unprecedented and never seen in this province where, you know, we're moving loved ones into completely different jurisdictions. And this is just a ministry that's scrambling because, you know, they're so ill-prepared. Uh, and, and, and I don't see, I don't see how that's, um, how anybody could have planned that. that. There's no way that people have actually planned that. Am I often saying that? Uh, well, I, it's just we have ICUs. They're full. They're full because no, of the no. pandemic. Anyway, no, thanks no. for your call, Joe. Uh, we get your drift. Uh, Alon at University Health Network, have they been transferring patients elsewhere? Yes, it all depends on your individual hospital, but certainly in our hospital, there was a point where we did need to transfer people out. And that ebbs and flows depending on the capacity. And certainly we do also accept patients who need higher levels of care. As you may know, also uh, the care called ECMO, where it's uh, heart and lung bypassed in order to um, help certain patients who are very sick. So absolutely what we're seeing now is a very unfortunate situation where the ICU capacity has been pushed to its limits. We're using non-conventional spaces now for patients requiring intensive care, even what we call surge spaces in areas we don't usually have patients. And this is occurring in numerous hospitals across Toronto to look after these patients. Yeah, like the hallway. Not exactly the hallway, but uh, some other spaces that, that are less than ideal at some points in some areas. Uh, so do you think that there seems to have been a shift in this third wave that uh, the province and other authorities keep lowering the age and trying to shift supply and do these pop-up clinics in these hard-hit zones? In your opinion, is that the right response? Yeah, the only way to get out of a pandemic, uh, of this kind of pandemic, is vaccination. That, that's really it. Lockdowns are just temporizing measures. They do their job for a short period of time, but, you know, you can't sustain them forever. So vac- vaccination is the only way to permanently get you out of the situation, and we know that to be true based on the experience of other countries, uh, even the United States in many areas. So the faster you can get them out, the lower the, the more you can attack the virus in places where it's most common, the faster you can get out of the pandemic. Right. But we still have uh, under this regime still, unless we hear otherwise, uh, we are stretching the interval between the doses longer than the recommended interval. That's right. And that's purely just a function of vaccine supply, that if the supply in Canada was better, we wouldn't need to, uh, you know, space out the intervals. But we do have more and more data saying that even one dose is highly effective. Last week, a paper from Israel and the New England Journal of Medicine showed exactly that, that there is a high degree of protection, even with one dose of the vaccine. And so the philosophy being it's better for me to have 80% and you to have 80% protection rather than me have 100 and you have zero. That's the reality we're dealing with now. Okay, I'm going to take one quick call before we let you go, Alon. We've got Robert in Etobicoke. Hi, Robert. Yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I had the COVID once already. And my physician said, uh, I wouldn't 
get it again. And uh, for some reason, I don't believe them. I already had my vax. Uh, uh, Dr. Vaisman? Yes, that's an excellent question. It's about timing of the vaccine after you've had COVID. Certainly, it's recommended that everyone get vaccinated, even if you've had COVID before. We're just not certain about what the appropriate timing is after you've had COVID. Somewhere in a range of a month, two months, or three months is about right. It's not, it's not to do with safety. It certainly is safe. Just about when can you get the optimal response after you get COVID. So certainly a month, two months, three months after you've had COVID, you should absolutely get vaccinated. Robert no, I had COVID asking, last October. Okay. Robert is asking if he can get it again. Oh, yes. Yeah. So COVID reinfection is quite rare, but it certainly does happen. And so we think that it happens somewhere in the range of three to starting at somewhere in the range of three to six months. So it certainly can happen, but it's infrequent. Okay. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, thank you so much for being with us. As always, we really appreciate your time. Thank you for your, having me. Okay. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, uh, there is in the works a pilot project that would allow pharmacies to dispense the Pfizer vaccine. And the reason for that is that that is the most reliable supply, apparently. And we will be talking about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. This week, we learned that a select number of pharmacies will be participating in a pilot project to administer the Pfizer vaccine. Up until now, pharmacies were only injecting people with AstraZeneca, but that supply is drying up given the horrible situation in India, which has stopped exports of the vaccine while their crisis rages. So federal officials say the supply from Pfizer is the most reliable, and uh, that's why they're testing its use in drugstores despite some logistical challenges. So if you have questions about this, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's go to Justin Bates. He's the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Hey, Justin. Hey, great to be back on your program. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So do you have any more details about when, how many pharmacies uh, will be participating in this? We continue to work on the final details with the Ministry of Health. Uh, Our expectation would be later this week, hopefully within the next couple of days, we'll be launching in a limited fashion in eight pharmacies in Toronto, as well as eight uh, in Peel region. So there'll be 16 in total. Uh, Those uh, locations are essentially chosen by the public health units and the Ministry of Health to be in hotspots. And there will be a limited amount of Pfizer supply Our hope is about two weeks we'll be able to test out all the operational elements and then broaden it out to other hotspot regions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's all in hotspots. I'm glad to see that there are uh, an equal number in Peel because that's been a big concern that they didn't get their fair share, what they saw as their fair share of vaccine supply and pharmacies who were administering it. So eight pharmacies, do they know who they are yet? We're just working out the final uh, pieces. Um, They are um, selected and they are aware of it. Um, It'll be made public uh, within the next 24 hours, likely. Okay. And uh, how quickly after that will people be able to get their shot? 
Well, we're anticipating later this week. So if we can launch uh, Wednesday, Thursday timeframe, then uh, it'll be opened up uh, in terms of bookings and uh, the details will be provided. Okay. So it's going to be bookings, no sort of first come, first serve thing. Well, I think with Pfizer in particular, it's important to manage this very carefully because the uh, expiration date on uh, this is a lot uh, quicker than it is for the AstraZeneca vaccine. So these uh, are thawed once they arrive to the pharmacy and they're good for five days and not storing it in a fridge temperature as opposed to the 30 days that you have as a window with the other vaccines. So in that respect, we want to make sure that we line up the appointments to the inventory that we have so that there's no wastage. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some of the logistical challenges we're hearing, you know, at the beginning of the rollout, there was this whole, uh, um, there was a lot of reservations because of the temperature it had to be kept at, and it was the explanation or the excuse for not rolling it out in the way it was originally intended. So what logistical challenges do you expect? Well, we do benefit from seeing the other provinces that have moved to enable pharmacies to administer Pfizer as well as the U.S., so we've incorporated some of those lessons learned. The most complex part of this is in its distribution. It's not as stable uh, as the AstraZeneca or Moderna vaccine, so it can't be uh, moved around a lot, um, and it has to be kept at uh, ultra-frozen temperatures um, while it's being stored until it's thawed, and then you only have that five-day period. It's also more complex to draw it out of the vial. There's the dilution that goes with it. There's six doses that are in the vial compared to 10 with AstraZeneca and Moderna. So some differences there in terms of the actual application and administering it. But all of these things are uh, available as resources to pharmacists. They've been educated and trained to do this. Some pharmacists are already doing this as they volunteer in public health units uh, in the clinics. So we're well prepared to launch this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking if, if CVS and the states can do it, there's no reason that our people can't do it. Yeah, and the experience in Alberta has been a good one. Uh, Nova Scotia as well. And uh, we, we know that it can be done. It's just a matter of more just-in-time delivery, uh, managing the inventory, matching it to the appointments, um, and, and moving the product a lot, a lot faster than we have with the other uh, vaccines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... I read somewhere, don't remember where, that Pfizer is working on making their vaccine a little easier to deal with. Well, that would certainly be welcome. The less complex, uh, the easier it will be to distribute it within the community. Uh, I think, you know, given the supply challenges that we've seen with Moderna being unpredictable, uh, AstraZeneca will probably be out in most pharmacies, if not tomorrow, by the end of the week uh, with no known schedule for replenishment um, from the U.S. or elsewhere. So as you as you said on the outset, Pfizer is the most predictable and certain of the supply and will be certainly more available. So anything that can make it uh, ac- more accessible in the community is a good thing. Uh, what about AstraZeneca? What about all those people, and I have to say myself included, that got a dose of AstraZeneca do you have any kind of information for us about that second dose? Yes, and I'm in that cohort as well. I, I just received my AstraZeneca yesterday, and it's an important part of the planning is that we need to make sure that we have enough AstraZeneca doses to uh, apply the second dose uh, within that 16-week uh, time frame. So we're encouraged by the discussions the federal government's having with President Biden in the U.S. Uh, we know they have 60 million doses sitting in a warehouse. 
that will expire soon, and they have committed to distributing that um, beyond the borders of the U.S. They're not going to use any of it, which is hard to believe uh, in the U.S. because they have much more of Pfizer and Moderna. So I'm I'm optimistic that we will have enough to cover off all of the second doses that have been administered. But given the crisis in India, and the Joe Biden has made a commitment to send uh, certainly most, if not all, of that stuff to India, where they're frankly in a lot worse shape than we are. Yeah, there's no doubt that a significant amount of it will go there, um, and there's other uh, priorities as well. But I do think we'll get some of that, uh, or look at other sources as well. Now, I also read, and I don't know if our government is aware, but I also read that Israel has a bunch of AstraZeneca that they don't need. Is anyone aware of that? Well, I know the federal government's working on that. Uh, The current mix we have is actually from Sweden and from the U.S. of AstraZeneca that's out in the community. So it wouldn't be, um, you know, uh, certainly unprecedented to mix uh, from different countries. And I think that's part of the whole COVAX system uh, worldwide was meant to be sharing and and prioritizing and sending vaccines so that uh, we can replenish and not have supply interruptions. I I thought that our supply was from the Serum Institute in India. Well, that was the first one. Uh, We did receive the COVID shield, which came from India, and uh, we ran through that in the first uh, phase where we had 165,000 doses um, in the 327 stores in three regions. But we received a second shipment from uh, the U.S. and some from Sweden that uh, allowed us to supply the stores in phase two and three. That got us to 1,400 now. So uh, you're saying that as early as tomorrow, we may get the details on the pilot project. Just to recap, eight pharmacies here in Toronto, eight in Peel region, and uh, how many doses? Still working out how many doses, but it will likely be in the neighborhood about 50 per pharmacy. Uh, that's to be determined, but um, there's a limited amount that have been reallocated. And until uh, next month when new shipments come in and the, reall- the allocations will be done with the public health units and pharmacies, we won't know exactly when we broaden it how many will be available, but that's stuff that we're working on right now. And what will the criteria be for getting it in the pharmacy, the age cutoff or anything like that? That's a detail that we'll be able to share likely tomorrow, but I'm uh, optimistic that it will be 18 plus and it'll allow us to uh, address some of the gaps, um, especially in the hotspot regions for essential workers that are um, at risk and uh, educators and others that we know um, need to get vaccinated in order to get the pandemic under control. Mm -hmm. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? We're ready for this. This is something we've been advocating for since the launch of the program, Uh, having all vaccines accessible through community pharmacies and other means is uh, the only way we're going to accelerate the vaccinations uh, across the province. So um, I think pharmacists have demonstrated our ability to mobilize quickly and do it safely. And uh, we're ready for this next challenge. Okay, Justin Bates, thank you so much. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Okay. So there you go, people. Uh, We will get more details tomorrow, but hopefully by the end of the week, uh, if you're in a hotspot, you'll be able to get a Pfizer vaccine in a pharmacy courtesy of a pilot project. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. 
and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And top of mind is the province's handling of the terrible third wave of COVID. Now, there's been a cascade of demands from medical and civic leaders to expand paid sick days as a key to stopping the spread of the virus. And last week, the Premier promised, quote, the best program in North America. And as you heard in Bob's news this morning, the province confirmed it wants to double the current federal sick benefit for workers to $1,000 a week. But here is the head scratcher. Its condition is that Ottawa is to administer the program. And from everything that we have heard, the umpteen hours that this has been debated, the problem is that Ottawa administers the program, that it takes a long time to receive the money, you have to apply for it, and that just doesn't work for low-wage workers who need cash to put food on the table and pay the rent. And that's why they are reluctant to stay home when they feel sick. So let's begin there. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Member of Provincial Parliament for Mississauga South. Hi, everyone. Hi, Lenny. Hello. Hey, good afternoon, Hi, all. Okay, let us begin with <clears throat> Charles. Uh, uh, I would imagine that you may have seen some of this provincial, federal back and forth in your day. How does this make sense, uh, asking the federal government to administer it when uh, the the fact that it takes so long to get money is a big holdup? Yeah, this is pretty classic, right? Here we have um, a provincial government that obviously needs some support. They're under a lot of pressure with regards to paid sick days because it's been ongoing for so long, and we had it instituted, which they then did away with when they became when they came to power, and now it's come to basically bite them in the butt. And now they're trying to do what they can. <laughs> you know, he says he wants to do it bigger and better. It's a bit of an overpromise that he made again in regards to this issue, and he's putting the onus on the, on the federal government. The federal government, to their credit, have been providing a lot of support uh, to Ontario through these pro- through their program of serve. They already have a federally regulated sick days policy for regu- uh, for their federal regulated businesses, and they're saying to the province, you do the same. In that case, then we'll talk. And I spoke to Michael Couteau yesterday, who brought forward the private member's bill around sick days, and he was pleased that the NDP spoke in favor of it, but not surprised that the PCs, once again, are saying, we don't want to put the onus on employers, we're going to put it on the taxpayers. If we go to the federal government, let the rest of Canada help pay for it. And that's, in essence, what they're doing. Well, no, they said that they will cover the extra $500 a week. Fair enough. Uh, fair fair the, enough, the but... To do more, right? Pardon? They're asking the federal government to administer it and yeah. to put up more money. Right. But uh, uh, but that's that, that's the crux of the issue, that that these people can't wait. They can't. And, he's, and again, they're putting something forward under their jurisdiction, under their purview, and they're deflecting it by putting the onus and the responsibility on the federal government yet again. Okay. And they're not taking ownership, and they're not showing leadership to do so 
right now when it's most needed. John, what's your response to that? Well, I would say that, and Charles knows this as the former federal uh, minister of Ontario, <clears throat> that, that there's always reliant on the federal government for money. They, they've got the money. They've got the ability to, to, to make it. They've got the ability to spend it more than, more than the provinces. And more importantly, their responsibility is to distribute it to the provinces. And I think the problem has always been this, and that is at the very beginning of the pandemic, at the height of the crisis, you know, you saw a lot of cooperation between the provinces and the feds and even, quite frankly, the municipal governments. But as this pandemic has moved on, has moved forward, and it's gotten, in some cases, more complicated, worse, we're seeing new variants, we're seeing all of this uh, mix up with vaccines and all this kind of stuff, you're seeing a bit of a splinter between the cooperation of all three levels of government because, you know, one level of government tries to do what they can, the federal government, to sort of make sure that there's some level of standard or some level of equity across across the country when it comes to vaccines, when it comes to payments, and all of the, all of the issues that they've been able to deal with. But the provinces who have to rely on the federal government for a lot of these things get 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 sort of stymied by it and in some cases have to say and have to point to the federal government for the premier has always has always said when it comes to sick, sick pay that the federal government has a program there's there's multi-million dollars of, of money that was earmarked for that uh they had the uh the canadian recovery uh, benefit plan that that allowed for some of that but the issue was and continues to be that it was never enough critics were always saying that even the premier was saying that so i think the fact that he stepped up and said look we're going to double it to a thousand dollars in four weeks is good but you can't do it alone you have to have the federal government helping and i think that's been the challenge and that is the federal government makes these announcements when they do but then when it comes to uh, the rubber hitting the road and, uh, and and actually where the action happens, it fails on, on a number of cases. Vaccines, we've seen it. We've seen it on some, some programs. I think the, the provincial government was looking forward to this federal budget to add more money to that particular item, and it didn't happen. So, so the premier had to step up and do it himself. Right. But, again, the issue has always been that these workers cannot afford an interruption in the money they receive. Karen, and yeah. having the federal government <laughs> administer it, it is not going to solve that problem. No. So there's there's a couple issues that, that have been talked about. You know, one is that the workers need the money right away. The second is that the federal government has a program that actually doesn't administer very well, compounded with the calls for the provincial government to develop a program they actually don't have. And so I'm sympathetic, actually, to the Ford government, because for them to now figure out how they are going to develop, administer a more effective sick day program than the federal government hasn't yet figured out is actually a big ask. And it's not letting them off the hook by any stretch of the imagination, but to think that this government can turn around a sick day policy and program and implementation and actually have it deliver cash to workers who need it in time is probably not reasonable. So I think that the idea that they would go to the federal government and say, can you deliver this on our behalf and we'll flip the bill, is a reasonable one. But then to have the federal government come back and say, well, you need to mandate employers to pay sick days, it doesn't help us. And so the question is, as an employer, I staff have to take time off to go get tested, and I've paid for it as an employer because it's in my interest to have healthy employees. I also have the benefit of collecting the Canadian emergency wage benefit for my employees, so it doesn't cost me as much money. So I think it is right for the federal government to say, employers, you are responsible for the health and safety of your employees. If they are sick and spreading this pandemic, then that's on you to fix. And if you need to collect some emergency wage subsidy, collect it, because if an interrupted paycheck is the most effective way to keep these workers 
from feeling that they can't feed their family. So the benefit should flow from the federal government to the employer, to the worker, and then the federal government and provincial government can do the accounting at a later date. Um, yeah, and, and uh, I, I know that what a lot of people were talking about is that if, you know, they don't want employers to bear the added cost, there'd be some kind of rebate program. But the only way to make this work is uninterrupted wages for people, Charles. There's no question. And the only way to do that, Libby, is have the employer pay the worker with the commitment that the provincial and federal government will work it out on their behalf. And, you know, quite frankly, and again, you know, we talk about the divide, right? Uh, where I'm divided because my business is closed. <laughs> and so in order for me to reopen, I need this pandemic to get under control. So I need the place, workplaces that are open to do something to help with that effort. And so if it takes tax dollars to figure out how to get those employees what they need safely, whether it's testing, whether it's isolation, whether it's quarantine, it's in my interest as a business owner, as an individual, as a citizen to help make that happen. But the employer has an obligation as well. Charles. Yeah, it's unfortunate that this has taken so long. I mean, this discussion has been has been ongoing uh, for almost a year. And, you know, to John's point, it's unreasonable now to expect something to happen quickly uh, at the last minute on both sides of government, on both levels. Um, so I'm with Karen on this. Let's, let's ensure that people get paid and let them work it out, uh, the, the repayment, to, at the, uh, with, with, with the respective governments. And the feds, in this case, are just a transfer agent. Now, to expect mm-hmm. them to administer mm-hmm. this for Ontario, they'd have to do something similar for the rest of Canada. And that's a big ask, too. So I think the, the province has a duty. There's a responsibility to them to put something forward. And if, if they're prepared to put up a half of it, then put it up. Just go ahead and put something, institute something for the benefit of those employers so that they at least know, at least the provincial government is on board. Um, it's unfortunate because there's a politicization of this issue. It has been ongoing as well. So I, I, I do sympathize with the Ford government, and I also recognize that there's some politics here, but the, the ideologies that are so different is creating a real dilemma for people's lives. And I look at some of the politicizations of that young girl, Emily Viega, who passed away in Brampton. Her parents are essential workers who are unable to stay home because they can't afford to. And they're going to work sick or they're coming back sick. And these are the sort of things that are happening. And then MPPs are defending it by blaming others for international travel and so forth. And it saddens me because these sort of things should have been resolved a long time ago. Yeah, and, and Charles, I know that you bring up that the Liberal government had two paid sick days, but two paid sick days wouldn't go very far to covering a, an isolation. But imagine having something already in place that doesn't exist, and then you can build upon it afterwards. You know, we would have had a system in place that would enable us to at least expand it there afterwards, or allow the, the provincial government and the federal government to top it up there in, in, in that case. But what has happened is they removed it completely. John, is it ideology that is preventing the Ford government from doing something like that? That's what all along people have suggested. The employers keep paying the wage and then get it back. No, I don't think so. I, I, you know, I, at the end of the day, I think that there's certain 
level of, of understanding that if a program is going to be made and, and programs that have been implemented have been by and large at the federal level when it comes to these kinds of things. And then the, the provincial government, not only in Ontario, but across Canada, the other provincial governments have either supplemented it, have, have, you know, been able to help administer it. But, but by and large, this is a, this is a global pandemic. This is nothing that, that doesn't, this is not just isolated to Ontario and to one specific region. So as a result of that, there needed to be, and there had been, quite frankly, and I've given the Prime Minister credit on this, a lot of work at the federal level to ensure that certain things that were that were needed across the country were there by level of support or by level of foundation in which some, and, and then the provinces were able to build on. And we saw a lot of that, in some cases, differing, differing issues and, and whatnot. And I think Premier Ford has always been pretty clear and has been pretty successful in the first, you know, the first year of this of this pandemic to ensure that everything that he was that, that the federal government was trying to do was implemented in Ontario. Uh, the things that were specific to Ontario were being altered and changed in, or, in order for, for people in Ontario to be, to be um, um, you know, looked after in, in some cases. But it is a constantly evolving and changing issue, as we know. Um, and, and I think the federal government needs to sort of keep, keep an eye on making sure that there are certain national standards out there that, that help all the provinces, including Ontario. Hmm. Let's turn now to uh, the military is coming in. And it was, uh, Karen, it was two weeks ago when the premier got, I thought, a bit huffy when the prime minister made the first offer saying, we don't we don't need your help. We need vaccines. And uh, suddenly uh, he needs their help. Yeah, it's been a bad couple of weeks for the provincial government, I think. And, um, you know, if someone's offering help, the best advice is to take it. And we needed it. We knew we needed it because even having extra beds only is effective if you have the nursing staff and the medical staff to help the patients in those beds. And so it, um, it is just, it's, it, it's just been um, a lot of miscommunication and a lot of um, poor messaging. And I think, you know, there is a bit of the blame game back and forth. Don't blame me. It's your fault when really it's, it's not helpful. And, uh, you know, back to if, if we need, we needed, we knew we were going to need the help, likely based on all the modeling that was the ICUs were going to get filled up and that, you know, more bodies are more helpful because we've also heard that vaccine, vaccine centers have to close because the nursing, nursing staff have been called away. And so all of that put together means that if someone's offering you help, you take it. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess at this point we are taking it. We we also saw the premier saying he's going it alone to to try and get more vaccines. Now even the AstraZeneca is going to be curtailed because of the situation in India. Uh, it just seems like things uh, are kind of almost uh, out of control, Charles. Yeah, listen, he's he's in a tough bind, and uh, he's had a rough rough couple of weeks. Um, and I, but I, listen, I give him credit for changing. He has a change of heart. <laughs> One thing he does do, he, he does change his mind when he makes a decision, uh, when he recognizes that there were bad decisions. The problem is, why did you get yourself into those predicaments in the first place, which is what's coming into question. But regardless of that, uh, now he's open to the military and the Red Cross. He appreciates the need. I know I have a friend, I think he's actually listening uh, to your show right now, who his son has been put on notice, and he's in the military. They're going to provide the medical staff, the nurses. These guys will bring the, the, the what's necessary to move beds and move tents and rearrange things as necessary. They'll do what they did in, uh, with the old age homes as well. And it's 
it's good that we have support. It's good that we have other provinces willing to come forward, and it's great that the premier is open to it because these priorities uh, and his change of priorities from, to some extent, from this political stance to the realization that needs to happen in respect to managing this pandemic here at home, um, uh, it's all about health and safety. And, and kudos to the Premier to, to, to show uh, uh, some courage in that regard. <laughs> Your pooch agrees. Um, <laughs> John, uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh has supported the budget. So uh, for now, for this second, there's not an election. Uh, how do you see that whole uh, little sideshow playing out? Yeah, no, uh, I'll, uh, let me, let me also just address something Charles said and, 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 and sort of agree with him on the fact that I think it's important that, that, you know, when, when decisions are, are made and, and, and other facts come into play that, that a leadership, a leader shows leadership by, by changing it or by altering it or by, by coming back with some decisions. I think we've seen that. And I admitted on the show last week that the premier had a, a pretty bad, uh, a pretty bad uh, week or two. And, and I think the fact is, that a lot of it is because of the shifting sands that we're seeing on a regular basis, but at least he's trying to, to change it with respect to the art, bringing in the army, bringing in uh, uh, sick pace and all those areas that I think he's focusing on. Um, so I think that from that perspective, I think that's positive. On, on the federal side, I am not surprised. And I think we might've even mentioned it on this program before where we talked about it pre-budget that, that ultimately what will happen is the NDP will, will end up supporting it. Even though Jagmeet Singh at some points decides that he wants to make a public statement to say, no, but even before, the budget that he would support it no matter what was in it uh that he wouldn't cause an election and then when the budget was was uh announced and released and then he would say well i'm not you know i i'm sort of not made up my mind yet i still might might vote against it just to add a little bit of excitement a little bit of uh, of of suspense uh but knowing full well those of us that watch this uh closely that he was not there was no way that he was going to vote against it so i'm not surprised um i, I do think that the liberals do uh understand and, and appreciate that whatever they come back with whatever they claim to be a confidence vote that they can rely on the NDP to support them. Uh, and therefore, this, uh, you know, I, I think this government will be in power, and, at least until the fall, I, I suspect. The fall. Karen, do you agree with that? Hello? Hello? Do you agree? The fall? The fall? Not oh. till the fall for an election? Oh, I don't think it's going to be until the fall. I, I agree with uh, John on that one, because the vaccine, you know, they've said that it's going to take until September really until we're all vaccinated and kids are back to school and people can really think about going back to work and uh, back in the office rather. And so, you know, I think it would be premature to call it before the fall. Mm -hmm. Charles, do you agree? Yeah, I do actually. Um, I mean, the budget just came out. They're going to go through the deliberations. The NDP will support it. Everybody, I don't think anybody has an appetite for the, for an election just yet, although Elections Canada is certainly gearing up and they're having all their offices and trying to, to get people ready if, if it were to happen. But, um, we have a bigger issue here and that's to fight this pandemic, not to fight the political arena. So, yeah, I think John's right. Nothing's going to happen until the fall, until such time we get started getting some herd immunity or some sense that we're getting through this. Mm-hmm. And uh, John, what do you see as the big issues coming up? I mean, in, in terms, I'm very concerned now that uh, the province has said that they want to clear space in hospitals by, by loading up the long-term care homes. But it seems to me that that is just off the public radar. 
Yeah, there's a number of things I think that that are that are sort of happening now with with respect to this uh, this third wave that is that it seems to be increasing and, and quite frankly also affecting other provinces. We're at Nova Scotia, which has been unbelievably under control for the last little while, now sees a, a surge and and, uh, and and so forth in other provinces as well. But I would say that um, that you know even even the Sunnybrook um, hospital grounds where where they've got you know those tents that were set up. Uh, are, are now starting to see some some patients, uh, you know, by way of trying to relieve some of the hospitals. And I think that that anything is is in play now to try to get you know relief where they can. Um, obviously, the hospital association has been saying for a number of number of weeks that that the, the hospitals are going to get overcrowded and and some some of the surgeries needed to be done there. So other people that were in hospital that didn't need immediate surgeries could be passed on to other areas. And I think we're starting to see some of that happening, which which is good. Um, also, I think that the army coming in and, and helping in, in some of that, you know, will, will probably relieve some of this, uh, some of the stress that's been happening over the last little while. Karen, are we just forgetting about our elders? Well, I, I was going to say it, it kind of seems like that's another ticking time bomb waiting to happen because although we vaccinated, we've had high rates of vaccination in the long-term care homes and in assisted living and in retirement homes, transferring patients from hospital into those facilities, those patients aren't necessarily vaccinated, and they certainly haven't received two vaccines. Yeah, and and the other thing, Karen, I want to let you finish, but they've decided that vaccinated workers can work in multiple homes, and uh, there's no proof that being vaccinated prevents you from transmitting the virus. That's correct, 100%. And also, we don't know that all the, I mean, we do know anecdotally that not every um, healthcare worker, frontline worker, or worker in assisted living or long-term care has also received a vaccine. Right. because Because they may not have wanted to. And so we have a situation where we have um, the long-term care homes are actually relatively under control because all of those patients have been vaccinated. And now we're introducing a whole new level of uncertainty. And I don't think it's, I think it's going to end in a disaster again. Well, this is what got them into trouble in the first wave. And granted, okay, it's not going to be quite so bad because of vaccines. And frankly, because a lot of them have already died. Right, right. And there's, there's a huge issue. And so I, I don't, I mean, I guess I guess it's out of necessity that they're making these moves, but one must really hope that they're really thinking through the implications of recreating the certain situation that happened in wave one. Okay, and here's here here is the thing. Uh, my bad because I haven't got around to checking this yet. So if anybody knows the answer to this, my take on the way it reads though is that. It's voluntary that that moving a patient from alternate level of care in a hospital into long term care is voluntary. Do any of you know if that is correct? My understanding would be that it was voluntary, and it was also dependent upon the long term care facility and what, whether or not there was able there was room there for 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 uh, the acceptance. To Karen's point. You know, a lot of a lot of the patients and a lot of the a lot of the care workers in long-term care facilities have been vaccinated. In some cases, even twice now, have gotten their second doses. But, but I think it's it's based on voluntary and it's based on capacity and it's based on whether or not the long-term care facility can actually can actually hold it in a safe way. Because what you don't want is to happen what happened in New York with the governor Cuomo, where at the Ugh. beginning he was sending sick patients to long-term care facilities and causing a huge disaster there. Uh, Charles, I know you're involved with long-term care. What, what's your view of this? Yeah, those ALC beds have long been an issue, yeah. uh, long before this. And, mm-hmm. they been, and because many didn't want to go to certain long-term care homes because uh, they didn't feel as safe as, as they are in the ALC or the, or the families. 
Um, but with the new rules and, and conditions now being placed on long-term care, uh, some of those patients may be better off in a, in a secure home as opposed to being exposed in a hospital where they are just as much at risk as they would be anywhere else. But uh, I, 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 you know, and I know at least in Peel, there's a big push for increased long-term care facilities being part partnering with the hospitals and with Trillium in this case, uh, and that's to release some of the ALCs, these uh, alternative levels of care that 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 are overbearing in the hospital at this point. Well, well, yeah, you're right that that was a big problem uh, even before this. Absolutely, that's my point. But and, and, but and, there and, was and, nowhere safe. To, to put mm-hmm. these people, they put a lot of people into long-term care at the beginning of the first wave, and look what happened. Mm-hmm. And partly because, as you mentioned, uh, we had a, a number of mobile PSWs and others take, uh, bringing uh, the, the virus into the home from other locations and putting at risk some of our seniors. But equally at risk right now is this third wave, and the majority of whom are young people. And that, too, is another dilemma for us. That is a challenge for sure. And, and that is, you know, there was the one demographic that was being hit hard by the first wave of the, of the COVID-19. And this, this variant is now sort of hitting everybody else. So, so I'm glad to see that governments are starting to lower the age for, for vaccines and more and more people are getting it. So that's, that's a positive step. I got my, my vaccine last Friday. So I was excited by that. Well, and you're a young dude. Um, <laughs> I was in the 18 to 25 category. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, uh, you know, it's tragic when a young person loses their lives, but, oh but it, God, you yeah. know, people just care so much more that it, it, you know, to a certain extent, it makes me shake my head. Yeah. Anyway, we are out of time. Let's uh, uh, go around the virtual table. Uh, Karen, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I do think that the uh, the vaccine take-up uh, relative to our supply has been very good to date. And, uh, you know, we're, we're the, what the medical officer of health indicated that in order for us to stay on track, we needed to vaccinate over 100,000 Canadians every day, or in Ontario, rather, pardon me, in Ontario. And we're, we're meeting that target and exceeding it in, on many days, which is hopeful. John? Well, just on the vaccine uh, uh, subject, you know, and as I mentioned, I got my vaccine at a, at a city of Toronto facility in, in, uh, in my postal code because I was of the age and in the hotspot. And I'll tell you, the facility was an old Target store at a mall, uh, and it was run like an unbelievable machine where you walked in, you were tested, you were, you were you know, checked with your health card, make sure you had an appointment, you were vaccinated, you had a 15-minute wait. I was out, in and out within 20 minutes. It was just phenomenal. And so I'm glad to see that, and I'm also glad to see that more and more people are getting vaccinated, which is a good sign. Charles? Yeah, I'm encouraged by the number of people getting vaccinated. I, I got mine a few weeks back. Um, and, but I am still, and I'm speaking for the Peel region where I'm in, there's still some degree of confusion. There's still some misunderstanding about the hot spots. It seems that some are being underserved, and yet they have critical need for those vaccines. And I just encourage uh, all those of government. I know we have angry councillors and angry mayors uh, disputing why Peel is not getting what they need, but it's not just Peel, of course, it's all across the province. Get those needles and those arms, uh, regardless of age. Let's just get it done. Okay. Thank you so much to our crack strategy panel, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. Thanks a lot. Thanks,
Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Uh, we will talk soon. Right now, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll have the latest on the pandemic and what you should be doing with Dr. Alon Vaisman when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.